We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the KMT talking 2024's presidential and legislative elections on New Year's Day, saying the vote will centre on war or peace. Taiwan joining many other countries and beginning testing of all passengers travelling here directly from China for the coronavirus, the rolling out of the citizen judge system, the National Federation of Teachers Unions calling for an end to the long-standing policy of teachers having to serve as traffic wardens or crossing guards, and the make-up Saturday holiday policy being in the news over the past week as 20 2023 will have six of the rather annoying make-up days. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen pledging to ease the public's financial woes through subsidies and tax breaks in her New Year's address. Tsai vowed to make housing more affordable, to provide monthly passes for public transport tailored to communities, to ease commodity taxes, as well as to keep fuel and electricity prices low. She also reiterated that the government plans to use the tax revenues collected in 2022 that exceed central government projections to give back to the public somehow. That was what she did that day. Anyway, at the time, she said the government plans to spend 100 billion NT, about 380 billion NT in surplus tax revenues on projects to bolster economic resilience and another 100 billion NT to ease the financial burdens of the island's health and labour insurance systems. She went on to acknowledge that there have been calls for the government to return some of the surplus tax revenues to the public in lump sum payments. But on Sunday, she said that's not a priority at the moment. Now, within 48 hours of that address, reports had already leaked that the government was, in fact, suddenly thinking of giving back some of the surplus tax revenues to the public in a one-off cash payment. And on Wednesday of this week, Premier Su Jung Chung announced that the government plans to give each citizen a one-off cash payment of 6,000 NT as a rebate from surplus tax revenue. A cabinet official on Thursday was cited as saying that the government will release the lump sum tax surplus payment by the end of February. The KMT, though, is calling on the government to issue the payment before the New Year's holiday begins. However, a cabinet official says that legislation and system setups must be in place before the tax surplus rebates can be issued. And the cabinet is now expected to finalise a proposed bill on surplus tax revenue by next Thursday and we'll then send it to lawmakers for approval. So Brian, everyone's getting 6,000 NT or some people are getting 6,000 NT I should say but I mean, is we had coupons of course we had numerous rounds of coupons over the past couple of years and the government have always balked at giving cash away and they've gotten coupons, this time they've gone cash Yeah, that's right. And so it is a flip-flop on multiple levels then, uh, particularly during COVID, for example, with attempts to boost domestic uh, consumer spending. There was the coupons, the vouchers are issued in various forms, and various local governments also issued vouchers as a way to boost the flagging tourism sector. And so this time around, there are cash payments. And there were criticisms of the coupons, particularly from the Pan Blue camp, that, well, why didn't they take the form of cash payments? And in response, the Tide administration framed it as, well, they're trying to encourage spending, uh, you need to spend the coupons in a certain time frame. And so that works better. But this time around, it takes the form of cash payments. It's also significant then that uh, there is such focus on the economy uh, after a election loss for the DPP, in which the economy was one of the major issues. And handing out money then opens the Tsai administration out to accusations that it is just handing out money to try to make up for these losses, to really try to win back over the public in that way. And so this goes back to the long-standing issue in which 
Before elections, oftentimes politicians will promise to hand out cash to members of the public as a way to win favors. And so this came up in some of the local elections this time, and now it's occurring on a national level in this sense. Michael. So I think one of the reasons that they gave out vouchers um, the last couple times around was, uh, at least I remember reading a couple of experts saying that it, it would mean that also people would not be able to spend the money on certain things that were uh, ineligible, like alcohol or cigarettes or gambling or the like. So if you got 6,000 NT in cash, well, you know, all bets are off. Uh, you can do whatever you want with it. So that's an issue that I'm no, I don't know if it's being addressed this time around. As far as having this problem in general of having a, a, a surplus to be able to give out, I mean, that's a nice problem to have. But I do wonder about um, the effectiveness of handing just money to people and if perhaps that could be, this surplus could be spent on things that would have a more longer lasting sort of like, you know, teach a person to fish plans. Um, that could be anything from building more affordable housing to putting in money for health insurance that would boost the program for, I don't know, maybe five years or something longer. Um, there could also be huger subsidies for e-bikes or e-cars or, you know, just things that would bring down your bills or make life better for a longer period of time than 6K in your pocket, which I would be willing to bet a, a good majority of people are just going to splash out on, I don't know, a new cell phone or a, a, a leather jacket or just some small item that isn't really going to benefit them uh, for any significant period of time. Yeah, that's right. And so there are criticisms then that this is short-sighted, uh, that there would be better spent, this money would be better spent on infrastructure, for example, or programs or other measures to alleviate the public. But oftentimes then handing cash directly over to the members of the public is something that then does result in public approval. The question also is, though, because it is taking the form of cash this time, it's possibly that people will not spend it at all. They'll just let it sit in their bank account. And so mm. at a time in which, for example, the economy has taken hits because of COVID-19 uh, and just the attempt to, to have economic growth trickle down to various sectors of the public, is, is uh, there's some issues with that, then this might not actually help. It might just sit in people's bank accounts, and then that doesn't alleviate economic problems. And of course, Brian, earlier this week when the government announced it was going to do this, there was the pundits were full of, they're going to do it again before the election. Yeah, it's very Possible, and it occurred right after the election. And so I think these moves and their timing are often quite significant after elections or before elections. So, Michael, I mean, could it be considered sort of vote buying in a sort of roundabout way? Oh, uh, I would have to say definitely, yes. And uh, as Brian pointed out, the election losses were um, uh, significant this time around for the DPP, and doing something that will bring a bit of uh, popular cheer to the public is going to go down well. But, yeah, as he also pointed out, we, we just... There are a whole list of possible things that this could be spent on that would have greater, longer-term benefits for uh, the people in general. Of course, I'm in favor of some sort of subsidies, be they uh, cash or um, credit card or whatever for lower income uh, housing and, and have people who are in certain uh, income brackets. But to be fair, there are a lot of us that don't really desperately need 6,000 NT. And if that money could be put into making Taiwan a better place somehow, you know, I think I'd vote for that. So, Brian, do you think everyone should get it or there should be a cutoff depending on your annual salary? I think that would be logical. I mean, there are extremely rich people in Taiwan, and I don't think they really need 6,000 NT, and they might not even spend it if they get it. And so there's that. 
Uh, I think there might also just be criticisms of the way it is rolled out. There's always points to snipe at, for example, regarding uh, just the ways the money is distributed and so forth. It'd be kind of interesting to see if this time around the KMD is the one calling for vouchers. But I think it's absolutely the case that it's not actually everyone that needs that. And so, apparently focusing on lowering income brackets, uh, I think the administration might want to avoid the work of, for example, creating benchmarks for cut or cutoffs in terms of that. Uh, but then uh, that would actually be much more logical. Brian, do you have any uh, information about how much it cost to print the vouchers last time around? I'm interested to know if like, perhaps <laughs> one of the thought processes was they wanted to save money on this, what I would guess would be at least somewhat expensive process. I, I think that's, uh, that could be part of it. Uh, it also could be, for example, just the uh, online system that would require for perhaps some of these kind of cash distribution systems. I mean, I don't know what form this would take this time. It might be to everybody automatically. But when you look at the natural rollouts of uh, various systems like this or cash handbacks from nation to nation to nation, sometimes you do have these logistical challenges. Because yeah, it was an American one they did recently. Yes. It was to taxpayers. You got it in a tax rebate. Uh, that's right, yeah. And so that that's one of those things. And sometimes it is just, you know, in some countries you really just do have to go to a website and press click and say, yes, I want this. And that becomes the uh, cutoff. Michael. There's nobody who's not going to be at least mildly happy that they get uh, a chunk of, of cash. But uh, I think there's a whole bunch of us who definitely would uh, vote for something more substantive if that was an option. Moving on now, while the president talked about the wonderful things her administration plans to do for the good of the people of Taiwan on New Year's Day, the KMT earlier that same day held its New Year flag-raising ceremony, at which former President Ma Ying-jeou described the upcoming 2024 presidential and legislative elections as offering a choice between war and peace. Speaking outside the KMT's Taipei headquarters, Ma said, vote for the KMT and there will be no battlefield across the Taiwan Strait. The comments by the former head of state, of course, came days after the government announced that the compulsory military service period will be restored to one year from the current four months. Now, Ma indicated that it always believed that national security plans should be to prepare for war, avoid war and seek peace. And he went on to say that vote for the DPP, youth go to the battlefield, vote for the Guomindang, there will be no battlefield on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. So, Michael, contrasting New Year's Day messages there. Yeah, and some might fairly ask, like, wasn't it actually the Mindjoe administration that uh, reduced the service requirement to four months? And um, as some people feel, wasted uh, almost a decade here now on this training with quotation marks on it that hasn't been effective and therefore made us as Taiwan become less prepared and therefore less safe. So if that's true, and it does appear to to be true, the the KMT's claims, especially uh, coming out of Ma's uh, mouth, seem a tad disingenuous. And also, I think um, he's illustrating that the KMT is not quite learned their lesson with how to express these things. They, they, it's been forever. I'm still waiting for them to, to get the, the memo that you need to. Uh, so he, he could have said, we in the KMT will defend Taiwan's democracy from any threat, including from the Chinese Communist Party. And then he could have added that thing about, uh, but we will also try not to be provocative. Da, da, da. But he didn't put that first. He, you know, at the end, as you just noted, he did put the, you know, we never want war and blah, blah, blah. But he didn't put the statement that is important to many people of that we will defend Taiwan, or if he wants to use the ROC or whatever, from any threat, including the CCP. So it seems like 
Again, the word disingenuous just strikes me. And as I was joking with you guys before we started recording, the KMT is the only party in Taiwan that's actually ever been at war with the Chinese Communist Party, and they didn't do a real good job of uh, running that war. So maybe not uh, the best judges of uh, this entirely, just saying. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's actually quite interesting, I find, because this illustrates the lines of attack the KMT will take, I think, going forward on the DPP regarding the extension of the draft. And I think particularly the KMT will try to make inroads among younger people, a demographic that has struggled with in recent years through attacking the DPP over the draft. I mean, in November 2020, for example, the KMT had less than 9,000 members under 40, though they claim recruitment is up by 40% in the last two years. Uh, so it's actually interesting because the all parties in Taiwan, all opposition parties, the NPP and the TSP, which is not surprising because they are pan-green, the TPP and the KMT, did sort of tentatively come out in support of military reform while calling for effective measures. But then, of course, when the KMT, now the narrative will shift. Uh, they can't go against this directly, openly, particularly because, for example, the military uh, veterans that are a core demographic of support for the KMT, going back to the fact that the military were the enforcers of authoritarian rule under KMT times. And so moves framed as restoring the prestige of the military, the KMT cannot go against very easily. But then, for example, now what we see with Mon, these statements is that this is resurrecting the old claim that the KMT is the only party able to maintain cross-state relations that are stable while framing the DPP as a dangerous cross-state provocateur. And so then we have this war framing coming up from Ma. Uh, Eric Chu, for example, seems to be following Ma's line here. Uh, he attacked the Thai administration for not conducting dialogue with China, but also expressing support for steps to maintain peace. And so Ma, I think his uh, line will be increasingly dominant in the KMT going forward. Josh Gong is another one, a uh, character in the KMT, that has taken an open stance directly against the extending of the draft. Uh, not all members of the KMT have gone to that extent yet, but I think gradually we'll see more pushback as time goes on. And this will become a framing issue ahead of the next set of elections, associating the DPP with war, extending the draft with war, and so forth. And I actually do think that views of the draft and part of the reluctancy to serve in the army among some young people are actually the association of military with war. And so that actually is one of the uh, reasons for negative views of the military and unwillingness to join the military. And speaking of framing, Ma also said that the DPP's cross-strait policy is out of tune with public opinion and has lost <laughs> public support. And I question if that's accurate. I wonder if the KMT is mistaking the election of some of their local leaders. Uh, well, they did quite well in the last you know, local election as a sign that the entire nation is moving towards the KMT for a China policy, when um, I believe most polls do not bear that out. And it also seems to me that the most popular KMT politicians, at least uh, uh, nationally, are the ones and the ones who have a real shot at the presidency in uh, 24 are, are folks like, you know, Ho Yi, the new Taipei mayor, or the Taichung mayor, Liu Shouyan. And these are people who are KMT, but sound very frequently exceedingly light blue, uh, almost moving into uh, green territory. So the DPP, sure, they may have miscalculated when they used the whole resist China support Taiwan in the 22 municipal and other elections. But I would argue there's little evidence that voters in 2024 would want another accommodating to China person such as Ma for president. Brian, do you think in, in the run up to the election, whoever the DPP nominates for its presidential candidate, and they've already said, both parties have said it could be quite early this, this year where they nominate the candidates, do you think they'll, the KMT will attack whoever they nominate as being a warmonger and you know, pushing Taiwan independence, which could lead to conflict? 
Yeah, of course. And so it does look like the front runner is William Nye right now, who is associated with the view then that he is a pro Taiwan independence worker.、Uh, he's made statements to that pa- to that effect in the past.、Uh, and so William Nye then,、uh, for example, he, his potential rival would be Zhou Enlai in Taoyuan, but he did not throw his hat into the race for the DPP Party chair. So it looks like it's very likely to be Lai. And so Lai will come under fire for that. Although Lai also did try to go back on the past while claiming it was、uh, possible to simultaneously love Taiwan and China, for example, in public comments as an attempt to reduce this kind. A pro-independence perception of him, and so then a lot might depend on his vice president, for example. But the KMT will definitely hinge on that. But I also do think that that will affect the KMT's own choice of candidates. They might actually take the result elections as a mandate to again try to push for the 1992 consensus and so forth, despite this being very unpopular with the public. Yeah, it would be a, a very big miscalculation in my view if they were to run, say, you know, Eric Chu, for example, <laughs> uh, when the, his. Ideas and comments are, are, are just out of step with what the new sort of status quo has been in Taiwan, especially since、uh, Hong Kong. And moving on now, and Taiwan joined many other countries on January the first when it began testing all passengers travelling to Taiwan directly from China for the coronavirus. All such passengers are now required to provide a saliva sample for a PCR test when they get here. Those who test positive for the coronavirus are required to begin a five-day isolation if they present no or mild symptoms, while those with more serious symptoms will have to call a 1922 hotline to arrange for transportation to a hospital. Now the results of the first batch of testing came back on. Monday, and found that one quarter of the more than 500 travellers who arrived in Taiwan from China on Sunday tested positive for the disease. Now, according to the Central Epidemic Command Centre, 146 of the 524 arriving travellers from China at Taoyuan International Airport tested positive, a figure equivalent to a 27.8% positivity rate. Now, health officials on Thursday announced that the positivity rate had fallen to around 20%, which is similar to that for China arrivals at airports in South Korea. And Epidemic Command Control Centre head Victor Wong said nearly half of the increasing number of imported infections in Taiwan now come from China. And while Wong also said the government currently has no plans to use the electronic fence system to monitor arrivals from China, he also stressed that there are currently no plans to open Taiwan to Chinese tourists anytime soon. And from today, all travellers from China who transit through Hong Kong or Macau are required to present a negative coronavirus test result before they can enter Taiwan. That means that. Airlines are responsible now for checking the health status of all transit passengers before they board the aircraft. So, Brian, obviously, lots been said. Beijing's been very vocal this week towards other countries that have introduced such measures, but it hasn't really been vocal about Taiwan doing it. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think part of it does have to do with the realization by Beijing that COVID will shape perceptions of China in Taiwan, which, of course, they want to win over. Uh, it's not the dominant news story, but it does come up at daily.、Uh, the COVID numbers, for example, at this point,、uh, but also behavior of the public. For example, panic buying of Panadol shows that there is actually concern about Taiwan opening up to Chinese tourists,、uh, and that this could affect Taiwan's health system, for example. And so, I think this will become an interesting cross-strait issue going forward in this sense,、uh, particularly as the Pan Blue Camp, for example, is now leaning into calling for reopening links with China, such as the three small links from outlying islands of Taiwan to China, and that could stress, for example, the medical capacity. Of outlying islands that do not have as much medical capacity as the Taiwanese mainland, and so there's that 
And so I think this will become a political issue in that sense. But it is actually quite interesting then that China has been comparatively quiet because uh, it is transitioning away from COVID zero and cases are evidently up. Uh, the cases were, I mean, by the statistics, increasing actually before they relaxed measures. So that illustrates how their policies have not worked out. But then after having staked so much political legitimacy on superiority of COVID zero, including in appeals directed at Taiwan, uh, that then proves hard to reverse for the CCP. And so that's, I think it's another reason why there's relative silence. Yeah, I agree. I think China would rather not highlight uh, what has been uh, an experiment that ended uh, pretty much in, in abject failure. But as far as Taiwan's uh, requirements, they seem like relatively common sense. They're not exactly onerous. Uh, I don't see it being discriminatory. It's all passengers, regardless of. of so it seems like a, a measure that is just something that would benefit um just in general, and I, I don't see a downside to it. But, Brian, of course, people are being told to isolate for five days. Now, then you have to trust people, of course. <laughs> That's of course, a challenge. This week we had the incident in South Korea where the Chinese national did a runner. Yeah, and that would also affect perceptions of uh, China in Taiwan. So it is quite interesting. I think also, particularly, Taiwan has incentive to take on certain measures to distinguish Taiwan from China in that sense. And so avoiding locking people in facilities or uh, electronic uh, fence system, for example, although Taiwan does have the technical capacity to do that, evidently. Uh, and so that, that is actually quite interesting in that sense. And it's a question will be if people will adhere to that. Uh, it is possible that Chinese nationals will be more willing to do this because of the fact that they themselves are panicked about China's measures. I mean, you have people fleeing measures and in China and so forth. Uh, but it's to be seen. I think that, that also affects perceptions of uh, China and Taiwan. And Michael, do you think we could see a return to some quarantine hotels? Um, only if one of these mutant strains, for example, begins to prove to be um, ineffective with uh, vaccines and if it's uh, some, some new variation. But uh, barring that, I wouldn't think so. And part of the reason is definitely what Brian just noted is uh, the contrast. We, we don't want to lock people up uh, any more than necessary. And the, the, the view that we had in China over the past couple of months has been atrocious. So unless it's something, you know, earth shattering, I doubt it. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Citizen Judge System, which allows members of the public to participate in the adjudication of certain types of criminal trials, is being rolled out this year here in Taiwan. And I spoke with Maggie Lewis, a professor of law at Seton Hall University, whose research focuses on law in Taiwan, with an emphasis on criminal justice and human rights, about the move and what it means for the island's judicial system. Good evening, Maggie. Good evening. Or actually, I'm on the other side of the world, so good morning. And let's jump straight in. And can you explain to the listeners a basic explanation as to what the lay judge system is? Taiwan, as of January 1st, has implemented a lay judge system, or as it's called in Taiwan, a citizen judge system. So a Guomenfaguan. And the goal here is to inject direct voices from the populace into the adjudication of the most serious criminal offenses. So this is not, and I'm an American, uh, as you can tell from the accent, this is not an American-style jury, but rather is what's known as a mixed bench. We're sitting up there in the front of the court will be both the professional judges 
and people selected randomly or somewhat randomly from society uh, to adjudicate the case together. And how are they going to pick these people that go on the citizen judge system? Yeah, and this will be really interesting because there's layers of picking. So first, you're going to have the general calling, finding you know people from all over uh, society, you know, not not kids, right? So these are going to be adults. Um, and then once you have this large pool of people just pulled randomly from society, there's then the next stage in the process, which is known as voir dire, where the prosecution and the defense will get to ask questions of the people in this pool. And from that will be selected six people to serve in an individual case. And of course, as you said, they're not a jury. They don't actually decide and vote on what happens in the outcome of the trial. They just have input into what's going on in the trial and the outcome. Well, they actually do. So this is what's interesting. So the guilty verdict is going to require, it requires at least six of the nine people to agree. And that must include at least one of the three professional judges and at least one of the six lay judges. So they do have to get on board, or at least you know one of them does, and actually if you look at the six of the nine, it's going to need to be several, who agree to the verdict. And what's interesting, too, is that this group of professional and lay judges together decide not only whether the person is guilty of the crimes charged, but will also determine the sentence. And why is the government opting to launch the system now? Well, this has been a long time coming. I mean, I remember over 15 years ago, these conversations were happening. And this is part of a a worldwide trend to consider how best to inject voices from outside of the professional judiciary into the decision-making process. And the judicial UN, the judicial branch of the government, did a lot of research looking at different systems And ultimately, Taiwan's system is most closely akin to the Japanese system, which is also similar to the German system. But here, too, it's important that this system is only going to be used for the most serious criminal offenses. So we're talking uh, offenses when the defendant faces more than 10 years imprisonment or when the offense results um, involves an intentional uh, resulting in death of someone. So while um, there's going to be a major change in these cases, it's really only expected that several hundred cases per year, at least at the beginning, will be heard using this lay judge system. And why didn't the government introduce it across the board for all types of cases? I think there's a couple reasons. So first of all, you know, when you go back to the motivation for why this was inserted into this complex you know, criminal justice system, from the U.S. again perspective, We have juries historically as a check on the government. It is a pro-defendant right system, saying that it takes, for the U.S., takes the decision-making completely out of the hands of a professional judge and puts it into the hands of lay people so they can essentially stand up against the government if need be. Here, Taiwan did not set out to do this to enhance defendants' rights. Rather, the real motivation were concerns about a lack of trust, faith in the judiciary. And if you look at you know, the different surveys, like one of them, for example, the World Value Survey, found um, that trust in the judicial system in Taiwan was only about 55%, which is lower than other developed democracies. 
So this was seen as a way to bring people into the system, because there's a lot of criticism, for example, that the professional judges were sometimes too lenient, especially in cases where, for example, there was a child victim or some other kind of heinous crime. And here, this voice of the citizenry could help counteract what judges were being known by some unflattering terms like homo fatwan or dinosaur judges because they were living in another era. They were out of step with society or wawa fatwan for baby judges, that these were judges who had done extremely well in university and passed grueling exams, but they didn't have life experience. Um, and so I think there's, you know, motivations that are really hoping to increase the public's faith in the judicial system. And what problems do you believe could arise from rulings made under the system? This is going to be really interesting to see as it plays out. But I will say that several years now, there has been a lot of efforts to do mock trials. I, I watched some of these. Every single district court around Taiwan has been doing practice sessions with fact patterns that have been created to sort of get a sense of how things go when you do a dress rehearsal, essentially. But what's interesting with Taiwan is that in the post-martial law era, Taiwan has been a very informed consumer of looking to different systems and taking some aspects, for example, of the Anglo-American adversarial system, where the judge is more like the umpire and doesn't get as involved in proceedings and the action is the defense of prosecution. But that's in tension with a historical emphasis on more an inquisitorial judge-led model. So there's a bit of a potpourri aspect going on in, in Taiwan's judicial system, which in some ways can lead to picking the best of all possible worlds, but it can also create some uncomfortable mix of, of factors. The one thing that's really at the forefront here is it used to be the professional judges would get the full dossier, the full file of the case, and review that before trial. Now, the downside of that is that the judges, whether they mean to or not, can kind of prejudge the case because they so much information before trial. The upside is that they know a lot, and so they come in having thought about questions. With this new system of citizen judges, you can't have six people who are not legally trained get this massive pile of documents plopped on a desk and said, go read it. So instead, you're going to have the action really shifted to trial, and both the lay judges and professional judges will not have gotten all that information before trial. This is going to require a real shift in how the trial plays out and push to the defense and the prosecution to have much more sort of the trial advocacy skills that you might see more in sort of the U.S. Hollywood movies and, and courtroom shows. So that's a big change. Evidence rules are going to need to change. There's a whole ecosystem. And so in addition to the formal law that was passed in 2020, the Judicial UN has also rolled out more detailed enforcement rules. And I expect that as this plays out over the coming years, we'll have continuing adjustments as we learn more about how it operates in practice. Has there been much criticism of the introduction of the citizen judge system? There have been all sorts of opinions. And again, this has been going on for years. Initially, there were suggestions, well, what if we just sort of had observers who gave opinions but didn't have binding power over the decision? This is more akin to the South Korea model. Then we had some of the voices more particularly from defense attorneys, the Judicial Reform Foundation, the Taiwan Jury Association, that were pushing much more for, again, more the U.S.-style jury that would take the decision-making power entirely out of the hands of the government into lay people. Concern of those groups that want to have more of that kind of jury system is that if you mix 
the professional judges and the lay judges. The professional judges, in some ways, need to act in a teaching role. They need to, for example, give kind of a crash course in the fundamental principles of justice, like the presumption of innocence. You want the judges to teach to a certain extent, but you don't want them to influence or, as some people say, sort of run or pollute the minds of the lay judges. There's a question of sort of how much will those lay judges stand up to the professional judges instead of just saying, well, you are the experts here, we're going to defer to you. So that's one question, and there's a lot of sort of you know, more psychology there about how people who are put in this position are going to react when the fate of someone is, is literally in their hands. And looking to the future, I mean, do you think Taiwan could move to a full jury trial system? Anything's possible. And I look back, you know, to about, I guess it feels like a long time ago, 2017, with the pandemic in between. But not that long ago, there was a, a large national judicial reform conference uh, that President Tsai put together to discuss all sorts of issues across the judicial system. And one of them was, you know, this real debate at the time about what direction to go. And I think that it's totally possible that as Taiwan has this experience, as people serve in this role as a citizen judge and bring that experience, talk about it on the media, to their friends and their family, that if it's a real positive experience, um, and it not only increases faith in, in the judicial process, but hopefully brings people closer to and the sense that they are invested in their criminal justice system, that it's entirely possible that the nature of cases that are subject to this process could expand. Again, for example, in the U.S., um, it's much broader. You know, if you have essentially more than six months possible behind bars, you have the right to a jury trial. And, and so, you know, there is um, the future. I, I love Yogi Berra, who's a, a famous baseball coach in the United States, would say that predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, so I'm hesitant to say which path Taiwan will take, but I am confident that uh, people will continue to be open-minded about thinking through how to adjust and perhaps expand this system going forward. That was me in conversation with Maggie Lewis, a professor of law at Seton Hall University. And now the National Federation of Teachers Unions this week called for an end to the long-standing policy of teachers having to serve as traffic wardens or crossing guards. Now the call comes as a case involving a teacher from Kaohsiung who was left paralysed after being hit by a vehicle while doing warden duty two years ago remains unresolved since 2021 due to an ongoing dispute between the Kaohsiung City Education Department and the school at which she worked. Now the union says that local governments should appoint volunteer traffic wardens, make improvements of traffic arrangements and signage around campuses and also better cooperate with the police on the matter. So, Michael, of course, it stems from an incident in Kaohsiung in 2021. Yes. So I've been researching this with Chinese language sources, and my reading isn't perfect. But from, from what I understand and from a video that is available on YouTube... Um, she was, she's a 40, early 40 year old woman who has three kids. The youngest is five years old. Her husband is a professional soldier and she was crossing a street on a zebra crossing. She's wearing reflective gear. She has one of those, you know, flags and a driver who ran a red light plowed into her 
and she was thrown into the air, and she's now, according to Chinese sources, they say she's in a vegetative state. Uh, so paralyzed may be a, a bit of an understatement. But some of the local stations had, had insinuated that the driver was also drunk, but I can't confirm that, and it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. But even uh, if he wasn't drinking, running a red light in a school area at you know uh, that time of the day is, is just insane. So... The first issue that we need to talk about is whether or not it's a teacher's job, and the answer to that is pretty much, in my view, a clear no. Police could be doing this. Uh, there's not enough police, they say, to be doing this. Retired police officers could be doing it. In some places uh, in Taiwan, teachers, uh, sorry, uh, parents will volunteer for uh, sort of uh, crossing guard duties and this stuff. And actually, in my daughter's uh, junior high school, she is required every now and then to go out and be a crossing guard herself. They take turns doing this. So for me, looking at this story, the one part about the dispute between the city government's education department and the, the other departments is, is they were saying that, oh, well, yes, actually, teachers are required to do this. And then the Ministry of Education of the city came in and said, oh, no, well, that may have been the policy before 2010 when we merged the two into Kaohsiung City. So there's this squabbling, and the squabbling is really unfortunate because what it means is that this poor family is not getting the compensation and money and help that they need. And obviously, if you're in a vegetative state for life, this is going to be a, a very, very expensive thing. And so she needs help, their family needs help, and, and that's uh, a very, very sad. But then the second thing that I turn to is just uh, what a, a statement this is about uh, traffic and safety, especially in Kaohsiung. So this was two years ago, and then we had the famous one where uh, just the day after Christmas and a family was hit by a drunk driver. It's just one after another. So we are not making fast enough progress with traffic issues in this city. I was in Taipei just recently, and there's a stark difference between the, the way people drive. Uh, Taipei drivers aren't, they're not driving any slower, but when there's a light or there's some sort of sign, it's very clear that people, for the most part, are following these things. And I don't think it's because Taipei drivers are necessarily better people. I think it's got something to do with enforcement and the fact that you're more likely to get pulled over after pulling some stunt in Taipei than you are here. We have people on scooters that uh, instead of sitting in a long bit of traffic, they hop up on the sidewalk, and this is just extremely common. Every single intersection at every time of the day you will see this. And drunk driving is just like, you know, the tip of the worst of the iceberg of a huge lineup of bad, selfish, reckless behavior uh, that resulted in a young mother being put out of uh, life by a driver at like 7 a.m. in the morning as she was walking on a zebra crossing wearing reflective gear. You know, it's, it's just shocking in a way. Yeah, so I think it's an issue that has multiple layers. And one is just the general issue of traffic in different parts of Taiwan and that there's lack of enforcement of traffic regulations and so forth. And you do have drivers that are pretty out of control and violating rules left and right. Uh, and then the other aspect is regarding are teachers the one that should be doing this? And uh, the answer is that teachers are often made to take on so many roles in, apart from their teaching duties. And this is another example. Uh, but then it's not necessarily the case in that the traffic issue is directly... I mean, this, this issue would not be solved if 
teachers or, or other people are doing it. Volunteers could potentially also get hit, for example, by out-of-control drivers. Definitely. And, and so that, that is the question here. And I think that these issues become compressed together. At the same time, I think it doesn't surprise me the school and the education department are fighting back and forth about this because this is always what happens when there's any incident in schools. The school, uh, the teachers involved, the authorities above are always trying to push responsibility back and forth. This happens from everything from traffic incidents to sexual assault uh, and so forth. And so this happens time and time again. And so that also points to issues regarding Taiwan's education system. And before we go this week, there have been some questions about how the government sets out national holidays. As while there may be six long weekends lasting three days or longer this year, that means there are six make-up work days scheduled. And as usual, those make-up days fall on Saturdays. And that's irked quite a few people. As while a majority of the working public, and students for that matter, will get some rather nice long weekends, it also means they'll be getting six rather long weeks. Like six-day weeks, Michael. Yeah, so it is nice to have long holiday weekends, and if you've lived in Taiwan for, you know, 25, 30 years like uh, some of us have, you'll remember the time when many of us had to work on most Saturdays, uh, if not the whole day, then at least uh, half of Saturday. So the, the long weekends are great. But this idea of having to do this makeup thing, I don't, uh, I was looking online, I, I couldn't really find other countries that uh, have these uh, policies. I'm sure there's somewhere that does it, but uh, one or two times a year perhaps might be okay, but this year with six, it does really get irritating. And my question would be, how much work is really getting done on these makeup Saturdays? <laughs> As from my personal experience, we sort of just sleepwalk through them to get to Sunday, and they're possibly not contributing that much to the economy. Finally, I think the government needs to better understand that uh, in general, and I know there's, there's some caveats here, but in general, the more days you give people off equals more consumption. So people will be going out and eating and spending money. And there's also other benefits that are not uh, economic, the mental health of workers, the joy of life, uh, all these sort of things. So if this isn't necessary, then I think we should uh, do away with it. Yeah, that's right. And there's also research that shows that workers are actually more productive if they have days off. But Taiwan, in past years, had had the world's fourth longest working hours. And the Tsai administration moved to cut public holidays in the past. And then now we see makeup days for the public holidays that people still do have. And so it is an issue. And the government, oftentimes, I think, at the demands of industry, is not really taking action on that or has just really done this. Uh, but it is kind of illogical in that sense. I mean, for example, this week, Monday was off. And then tomorrow, Saturday, that's a work day. Uh, it's a bit confusing for a freelance worker like me sometimes, in which I'm not actually tied to the holiday schedule. But it is just... Uh, a very odd facet of life and people already work enough long hours and doesn't actually always help productivity it'd be like the government giving a 6,000 NT rebate and then saying hey but you have to pay the 6,000 NT <laughs> rebate back Brian yeah like loans the government giveth and taketh <laughs> yeah <laughs> And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joining the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.